Bob Murphy Show, episode 89. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. My guest today is none other than David Gordon. Let me read his official bio here. So David Gordon is a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. He was educated at UCLA where he earned his PhD in intellectual history. He's the author of Resurrecting Marx, the Analytical Marxist on Exploitation, Freedom, and Justice. Also the author of The Philosophical Origins of Austrian Economics and also of An Introduction to Economic Reasoning. He's the editor of the volume Secession, State, and Liberty. And he's also, one of his longstanding roles is the editor of the Mises Review, which uh, is his outlet for providing book reviews on various topics that are typically of interest to Austrians or libertarians. Today, I'm going to ask David the, the standard question I ask of such people about his background, but then also we're going to turn to a more recent controversy where he provoked someone into declaring that libertarians had a suicide pact. And so we'll have David explain the backstory there. So without further ado, oh, last thing, let me just mention, David has a very um, unique sense of humor. And so you'll see that he's, it's very deadpan and self-deprecating. So in case you've never heard him speak before and you're surprised by our conversation that that's what's going on there. Dave and I are old friends from the Mises Institute. So without further ado, here is my discussion with David Gordon. Well, David, welcome to the Bob Murphy show. Oh, thanks, Bob. It's good to be on your show. So David, as I normally do with guests who have been icons in the libertarian movement uh, for some time, let me give you an opportunity here to just Tell your story. How did you get into this stuff? The standard question. Uh, well, I got interested in uh, libertarian Austrian stuff quite early on. When I was in high school, I mean junior high school, I started going to a bookstore called Poor Richard's Bookshop in Hollywood, California that featured uh, libertarian and conservative books. And I started reading uh, Mises in Rothbard, I read Man, Economy, and State when it came out in, uh, in 1962, and I read Human Action. And one book influenced me a lot, uh, the Bastiat's pamphlet, The Law, made a big impression on me. Did you read but, that when it came out? <laughs> only in a previous life, <laughs> which I didn't have. But, <laughs> but after, uh, after that, I I tend to, I'm this is still the case to a large extent. I'm a rather uh, introverted sort. I don't mix with a lot. I'm not much of a socializer, so I didn't get to meet people who had similar views much. And then in uh, 1969, when I was a senior at UCLA, uh, Friedrich Hayek was a visiting 
professor in the philosophy department. I took his course on philosophy of social sciences. And then I didn't uh, meet Murray Rothbard until 1979. And I met him through uh, George Smith, who was a local libertarian who knew him. Uh, Rothbard was visiting him and he introduced us. I'd met George uh, some months earlier. So uh, Murray invited me to a, a Cato Institute uh, program that was being held in Eugene, Oregon. It was in uh, June 69. And evidently, I made a good impression on him and also Ralph Rako and Ron Hamway because they gave me a job at the Cato Institute mm-hmm. for a while. And then you, you may know uh, Murray had a big falling out with uh, Charles Koch and mm-hmm. Ed Crane and the ones who were running Cato. So after Murray left, I I left also Murray uh, got me. First, I had a, a grant to do a book from the Social Philosophy and Policy Center in Bowling Green, Ohio, which uh, led to my book, Resurrecting Marx. And then afterwards, when the Mises Institute was founded, I started doing uh, lectures and writing for them. And I've been with them ever since. They they managed to put up with me, even <laughs> though I'm my... I'm, uh, I'm fast decaying. <laughs> um, can so uh, there's a lot there to unpack. So for one thing, that bookstore was it merely that it just had all sorts of things, or it really was like primarily centered towards conservative and libertarian books? Uh, no, that that was its whole purpose. I mean, they may have had a few books of general interest, but mm-hmm. that would have they would have gotten in by mistake. Right, right. And were were they like naming themselves after poor Richard Zalmanac? Is that what the title was from? Uh, uh, yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. And then you said, so you were an undergrad at UCLA. Uh, yes, that was in '69. That was uh, Hayek gave the course. I think it was uh, started in the late '68 and finished in '69. So I, I graduated. My BA was in June 69 from UCLA. That's a, a long time ago. Yeah. As I unfortunately and, think. And so Hayek was like, he actually was the, like he came in and, and taught you what, like three times a week or something? It, it, uh, yes. Yes. It was a reg, regular course. Now he was always, also at the same time, I was, uh, too shy to ask if I could go to that. He was giving a graduate seminar on the, which became his book, uh, Law, Legislation, and Liberty. You know, he was giving a seminar on that. And we, uh, one story I like to tell about Hayek's class, the one I took, was that uh, one uh, for a few days, I think one week, he was he was absent. He had to go somewhere and he had as his substitute uh, James Buchanan so it was you had in the course you were there were two future Nobel Prize mm-hmm. winners in economics giving the giving the course which was impressive I I think 
Yeah, definitely. Were there, um, so, I mean, this is interesting. So at that point, I mean, you had already read Human Action and Man, Economy, and State. Yes, had you, Road had to, you read things like Road. Prices and Production, or were you? Uh, I read uh, Road to Serfdom, mm-hmm. and I think other stuff by, oh, I read uh, Counter-Revolution of Science. Mm-hmm. Was one thing, it, despite the fact that I uh, give lectures at the on economics and I'm not really an economist, but I try to keep up with the mm-hmm. economic stuff to some extent. Uh, I, I was trying to think if I'd read Price and Production. I know I'd read some of Hayek's economic essays. I, uh, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how much I read of him. He, he was, uh, he was a very uh, one thing about him, Axel the story that uh, people find his style very difficult. It has very, very long sentences with all sorts of subordinate clauses that are hard to figure out. And, uh, unlike Mises and Rothbard, who have a very direct style. So one thing is why he wrote like that. You know, people sometimes mm-hmm. say when you're writing, you should write the way you speak. That was the way he spoke. <laughs> mm-hmm. He would give lectures. He would never have notes. He'd just sit at his desk, and then he'd give a lecture, which could you could print it, and it would sound exactly like one of his books. And it, it wasn't that he just that he memorized it before, because if you ask him a question, he would respond in the same in the same way. Everything would come out very carefully mm-hmm. structured. That was that was just the way he he thought. He was an extraordinary mind uh, in in uh, analytic philosophy. Uh, one thing that's stressed very much is a very quick quickness in argument. Clever examples. My friend Bob Nozick was sort of the top one I ever met along those lines. But Hayek wasn't didn't have that sort of mind, but once hell, he was extraordinarily deep in the way he was thinking. You could, you could tell right away, this was a very uh, profound thinker. And I think people, we didn't really go into political stuff in the class, but I think people could see this who hadn't met, who hadn't met him before. He didn't know who he was. This was an impressive person. Yeah, that was my uh, assessment of him as well. Uh, my dissertation was on capital theory, so of course I read his pure theory of capital, and I didn't necessarily agree with everything he did in it. But I mean, yeah, I just remember reading that and thinking, "Whoa, this like he has a powerful mind, and he's really taking some of these concepts really deeply." Um, and, and so, so you're right; it's stuff like his more famous work, like the Road to Serfdom, whatever. I. I don't get too much out of that one, but like, yeah, some of his more technical stuff, he, and some of his earlier economic uh, work, I, I really, you know, think that it, he, he, the modern Austrians, if they're interested in that capital theory and that kind of stuff should really go read some of his earlier work. If, in case they think that Hayek's overrated, you can see why he was considered such a big deal among his contemporaries. Oh, oh yes. Yes. One thing in uh, purity of capital, I think, People sometimes say, oh, well, you know, he never responded to Keynes' general theory, but he has 
in he doesn't have many pages on it, but he has some very important stuff in Pure Theory Capital on what's wrong with the Keynesian system. We discuss his bottlenecks and other things. So I think there's a lot in in that book. But I must say, on Pure Theory of Capital, uh, it's uh, certainly worth reading. But it would be nice if it came out in English translation. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's his most difficult book of the ones I've read or tried to read. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, the sensory order is also a very tough book to read. Right. The yeah. The joke I made was he says in the beginning of the pure. You know, the why is it called the pure theory of capital? He means because he doesn't have monetary factors in there. Like it's a quote real. <laughs> you know, model of the economy and the, you know, the, the capital right. theoretic issues. And then he promises that, okay, after I do this, then I'm going to go on to do, to introduce money. And then he just never did. Cause I think he thought it got too complicated. And instead he picked something easier, like modeling the human nervous system. And that's what he did later <laughs> in his career. <laughs> He's like, none of this monitor, this too, that's too tricky. Let me do something easier. Um, So, I mean, I'm just like, do you have any other anecdotes I mean, that this is amazing to me that you you had a, a high a college undergrad class that was you know led by Friedrich Hayek. So you said you you at least got the sense that wow, this is this is a serious thinker that you could tell just um, from that aspect. D- I mean, did you ever like talk to him after class or anything, or was he was he inaccessible? A, a, a little bit, a little bit. He was he was he was friendly, but he he was very uh, reserved in mm. manner. I remember I, I made him laugh a few times with. I remember I told him the, the joke about the two behaviorists who meet each other on the street. One says to the other, uh, you're fine, how am I? And he, he said, uh, he says, oh, that's very amusing. <laughs> that's good. I, we, we shouldn't even explain it to the listeners. Just let them think about it and they'll, they'll get it. Maybe they'll be driving <laughs> down the street tomorrow and, and start laughing. Um, okay, and then, so when Buchanan took over, so at this point, I mean, were these people famous? Again, I'm, I'm having. I mean, I like. I know now that they're big guns in the, in the in the field. But at the time, like, did you know to think that ah, yes, these are these are famous people who are leading my class. This is a, a nice opportunity for me. Or is that not the oh, way you were well, thinking? I, about th- it? I think, of course, Hayek was was quite, I think quite famous at the time. Mm-hmm. He's a very big name. I think Buchanan at that time was sort of up and coming. He was he had. He uh, calculus of consent came out in I think sixty two, and it attracted some attention. So he was, I think, a rising star. Now, one person who was there at the same time as a visiting professor, although I didn't meet him, then was Leland Jaeger. Mm-hmm. So it was the UCLA economics department at that time was quite free market. They had uh, Armin Alchin. Uh, William Allen and Earl Thompson was very uh, unusual person who uh, who was in the department. He, he had had a very he he always had an unusual angle on things. So it was a very free market department. One thing I remember when uh, Walter Williams was a grad student at UCLA was I remember I I went to one time to hear a lecture by Buchanan and. Walter Williams was in the audience and asked a question. So uh, I remember Walter Williams when he was still a grad student. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's a lot of big names. Um, Because I I think, unfortunately, some of the younger economists today, they just think of like, oh, the Chicago school and maybe the public choice school. And of course, you know, like the saltwater, freshwater divide. But but like there's this whole tradition of the UCLA price theory. Like we might might call micro today, but... But yeah, that's no. Really... I, I I don't think uh, I don't think that would hold water with them, whether fresh <laughs> or salt water. <laughs> right. Um, so, so then you eventually. I mean, I know you often talk about you know your reminiscences of of Murray Rothbard. Did that happen fairly quickly, or because you were mentioning how you know you were a bit reserved yourself socially, or did it like did you know him for years before finally like you thought okay he's my friend and and you were more social? Oh, oh, oh. No, he was actually he was extremely friendly, and I always I became friendly with him right away. He could draw me out quite easily. He had a very irresistible personality. He'd always start uh, joking and making comments on. Uh, on things that I, I used to call him up a lot. And, uh, you know, one thing course with him, uh, he, he got up very late in the day. So you would always call him, uh, late in the day or in the evening. It, it, you, if you, you couldn't call him in the morning, that would be, if you call him in the morning it would have to be something really exceptional. And then his wife, uh, Joey Rothbard was also a great personality. I knew her very well. She had a a very she was she was had the greatest source of information on people of anyone I'd ever met. Uh, of uh, what everybody was doing, she she knew everything. What what all the stories on people. She mm-hmm. kept up with things, and she was a scholar herself. She had. Uh, she knew a great deal about the uh, music and literature, and I guess she was she studied American history also. So they were they were a great couple, and there were all sorts of uh, good stories about remarks. Uh, uh, Murray would always have he he had met in his life because of association with the libertarians. He'd met all sorts of unusual people and he he kept up with all their peculiarities and he'd have stories about them and what it like i remember once uh he was talking about the uh, revisionist historian harry elmer barnes so uh murray at one time had been the editor there was going to be a big festschrift for barnes and barnes found out about it he, uh, Barnes hey, hey David, at, can you just, for the benefit of listeners who aren't from academia, can you just explain what is that term, festrift? Oh, festrift. Yeah. That's a, a volume, it's a volume of essays that uh, scholars write in honor of another scholar. Very often will come out uh, in some, to commemorate some date in the person's life, like his birthday or his uh, his years since he got his doctorate or his retirement. So it's a volume of essays in honor of a of an academic. So uh it is nice because it like the person gets to see it while he's still alive. 
Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, unless he hopes it doesn't kill him uh, <laughs> when he reads it. But if the first essay is really bad, he just keels over. So uh, uh, Barnes got wind of the fetch script, and he would read the essays, and then if the person had said something critical of him, he would insert afterwards. Uh, Professor Barnes would uh, probably respond in this way to... <laughs> The point being made. So Murray said he was telling me about this. He said, "Yeah, he wrote his own fashion. <laughs> <laughs> sort of unheard of. Um, so I'm just in terms of your own um, development, though. So then you eventually. So you, at what point did you know, for example, you were going to go to grad school? Like, did you know that from a young uh, age that I got to do this? Or uh, well, I thought yes. I thought you know at first. I, I always thought I'd have try to have some sort of academic career. And first, I wanted to be a historian. I got my PhDs in French history, but then I found afterwards uh, philosophy is much easier. If I had to do it over again, I would have tried to get a green philosophy because all you have to do in philosophy, you don't have to do any work. You just have to come up with arguments. <laughs> and and I so all my. Uh, I think practically all my professional publications were in philosophy journals. I found it was pretty easy to do. You know, just write something up and send it in, and then they hope they take it. And in those days, I think now publication people are saying, "Oh, how hard it is to get things published." But I guess in those days it was a bit, a bit easier. But I, as I say, I found that uh, philosophy all you have to do is come up with arguments. But uh, did, can I stop reasons, you? Did you say your your PhD is in French history? Yes, yes, that's right. So, like, what was like, what was your dissertation topic? It was on this uh, French political philosopher Jean Baudin, who lived in the 16th century, and I was comparing his uh, political views with his views on metaphysics, theory of knowledge, trying to show parallels. But I, I never did any further work on that, which is is just as well, but uh, I did. Well, he hasn't really a, written much lately, so I mean, me, he hadn't me. really written much else. So I mean, he, you kind of your thing was the last word. Oh no, no! I mean, he, he's a big subject. Yeah. People write on mm -hmm. on Bodan. I mean, he, he's one. He's one of the big names. I remember one story when I was doing my dissertation. I went up to see Eric Vogelin, who was then uh, visiting at the Hoover. Institution in Stanford. Bolin, incidentally, was a member of Mises' uh, seminar, and he was in this uh, Prefat seminar. He, mm -hmm. So he, he knew Mises quite well, and he was a great scholar of uh, history, political philosophy. And I remember when I saw him, uh, Bodin had written a book called "The Universal Theater of Nature." And Vogelin showed me he had a copy of the, uh, I think it was the 1590 edition of this book that he showed me. I I wasn't able to steal it from him because he <laughs> didn't leave the room. But you, you don't see too many people, as I haven't, who have copies of 16th century books on their shelves, originals. Yeah, that is, that is nice. Um you got the, the the PhD in French history, but then, as you say, you you did more 
um, work. But even there, I mean, technically you were saying it was history, but I mean, it was more like political philosophy. Yeah, yes, a lot mm-hmm. more intellectual history, that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So uh, if you could, I think people, you know, who, who aren't, haven't really studied this, I mean, is it, in terms of the, the academic philosophy, is it, um, is it fair to say that on the various issues that like a, the philosopher will say, oh, let's think about these terms or this, this concept in, in this way, and here's my framework, and then people will point out problems with that, and then is, is that sort of how philosophy proceeds? Because the other areas of, of human inquiry, you know, like physics or astronomy, or it's more straightforward what you're doing, but in philosophy, it's like, oh, let's think about how we think about things. Oh, yes, that's a very good point. I mean, a good deal of philosophy is about what is philosophy. That's, I mean, you, you don't find, say, people in uh, chemistry who think, well, what are we really doing in chemistry? Mm-hmm. What is chemistry? In economics, you have a little of that, especially among the uh, dissenting schools from the mainstream people who are concerned with what is it we're doing in economics. But philosophy is like that. So there's no one accepted uh, way of doing philosophy. Now, the kind I'm kind of, in philosophy, I'm kind of very strictly analytic style where you take particular arguments and try to analyze them and show what's wrong with them. So one thing that's gotten me into trouble with a lot of people is that when I'm not very a very creative person, but what I like to do is I see an argument, I can sometimes find problems with it. So I, if I see an argument, I, I will almost always say there's something wrong with the argument or mm-hmm. raise problems for it. And people who have come up with the arguments for some reason don't like that so much. So in part, I use this in my work for the Mises Institute. I uh, mainly been a, reviewer and uh, I used my tendency to uh, be critical I built it up some sort of a comic way where I got a reputation of being really awful really mm-hmm. negative on everything and just I mean it reflects real tendencies in the way I think but I played that up uh, somewhat for humorous reasons so that you know I, I you say if you can't say anything bad about a book. Why say it at all? <laughs> yeah, I have seen people responding. I mean, it it's easier now with online videos and things like anybody who wants to can take 30 seconds and find you on YouTube and giving a lecture at the Mises Institute or, you know, Mises University. So they can see, but I used to say to people that, you know, if you just read David Gordon's book reviews, you might have a different image of him than if you saw him in person, you know, cause you're so, uh, I'm not, you're such a lovable f- fellow. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not, oh, I'm oh, not yes, trying to embarrass yes, you. I, I, I'm not, I'm not as awful as you would think. I'm still pretty bad. I would say, but I'm not, I'm not as awful as you might, you might think I, now one thing in one of the few ways I think I can say I'm like, uh, Mises and Hayek is that, if I have students, I'm very easy on them. I feel if somebody's nice enough to want to study with me, then I 
I I would always support them, and I wouldn't. I I'm an easy grader. I wouldn't be critical of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mises and Hayek were very easy graders. Uh, Hans Hoppe is also a very easy grader. Uh, Murray wasn't so easy. Murray could be pretty tough with students at times, but if if he found some student who was he thought was smart, he would really encourage them. But but he he would he would be rather harder than some of the others I mentioned. Now, do you mean in terms of just the final grade given, or do you even mean like somebody writing an essay and? Hayek or Mises classes when they were, you know, college professors that they might not point out all the mistakes in it, even if they ended up still giving them. Oh, no, no. I mean, if you gave them, I'm sure if you, uh, Hayek and Mises would be good at pointing out mistakes in management, but I meant more as grading students. Mm -hmm. It was was easy to get an A from Hayek or Mm -hmm. Mises. Not, Not so easy to get one from Rothbard. Huh. That's interesting. That's, uh, I, I could imagine people being afraid. You, you just have this image of Ludwig von Mises in his three piece suit and you know, he doesn't give higher than a B, um, <laughs> especially cause he would have been teaching American students after giving his seminar in Vienna. And I, I was just thinking, you know, <laughs> imagine him thinking, I can't believe now what's, what's come to this. Oh, I think he, he, he liked his, he, one thing I, from what I understand if you can't, he would like it if students raise certain points that uh, and he would encourage discussion. But he didn't. Mises tended not to like it if, say, uh, people very strongly disagreed with his ideas. Like if, say, this, if uh, somebody was a socialist and mm-hmm. would say, "Oh, you know, I think socialism is really great," uh, Mises wouldn't like that so much. I said. Uh, Funny story, I, I think that uh, Hugh Gateskill, who later became the leader of the British Labour Party, was an economic student um, in, I think he studied at Oxford, I think. So he visited the Mises seminar in Vienna, and he gave a talk uh, <clears throat> defending socialism from the socialist Mises socialist calculation argument. So after he finished, uh, Mises just complimented him on how good his German was and <laughs> didn't say anything. So that was pretty devastating, I would think. Yeah, I, I, I know. I remember reading Rothbard saying how you know Rothbard would go to Mises. Uh, class at, at NYU, like, I don't know if it was official class or just like a seminar or something, but in Rothbard, a few of the other students were getting frustrated because, yes, yeah, some other attendee would raise what Rothbard thought were pretty silly, you know, day mm-hmm. one objections and the, those waste, you know, detri- so Mises had to sit there and, and deal with this guy throwing pot shots at, you know, the free market when Rothbard wanted Mises to get into real deep stuff. Oh, oh yeah, yes. I mean, Mises, uh, there weren't that many uh, people in in the seminar who were uh, capable of doing advanced work in economics. You know, it's unfortunate Mises didn't get to teach uh, in a real a grad program where he could have gotten students who would have been interested in the very technical stuff. But, you know, he, he, he was, I think he, but according to what uh, 
Murray said Mises liked his did like his students, and he was glad he glad that he uh, was able to give his seminar. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can transition here because you were mentioning about you know philosophy, and I know that one of the objections that people have to the Austrian school, and particularly like the, the first part of human action is they'll say something like, yeah, I mean, he's talking about all this stuff in epistemology. I mean, it's, it's like philosophy like, Hey, g- give me the economics. And so can you speak on, on that? Like, like, do you find that the Austrians are more philosophical for lack of a better term? And, and I imagine that you, uh, you think that's a virtue if so. Uh, well, I think Mises certainly uh, knew a great deal more about philosophy than most uh, people writing about economics. But I think the reason for me that economics is always primary, and the, the reason he devotes, or a reason, I think the main reason he devotes so much time to all this stuff about epistemology, he wants to make clear what the basis is for the various claims he's making in uh, mainstream neoclassical economics is you know much better than I do the way they proceed is they'll build up a model and then after you constructed the model then you try to test the model you generate predictions try to see how does the model work out is it confirmed or falsified or and Mises didn't work that way, so I think it was very important for him to explain why he worked the way he did. And he thought in what he was doing was really the way economists had worked in the 19th century before this uh, neoclassicals came in and had this a mathematical way of doing things. He he thought he was really formulating a base the way economists proceed. If you look at say uh, Milton Friedman on price theory, it's, it's somewhat a Misesian in style. It's deductive, and that's the sort of standard way. I mean, Mises wanted to give a a uh, background showing how why economics is. Seeing that way. Now, one thing I think a mistake many people make about Mises is because of his interest in philosophy, they think he's trying to solve philosophical problems. Like they'll think, well, they'll say things like this well, Mises is talking about action, but how does he establish that from his own action that anybody else acts? How does he know? He isn't the only person who acts. Uh, But I think Mises isn't trying to solve a problem. He's not like Descartes trying to say, how do we know that uh, I'm not dreaming or anybody else exists? How do we know there are other minds? I'm not the only mind. In the sciences, we take the existence of the world as given, you know, just like a physicist wouldn't say, well, uh, you know, we have certain observations that we're making, but how do we know there are such things as observations? Maybe we're all dreaming that 
they don't do that. And similarly, in economics, uh, practices, we're, we, we take the existence of the world for granted. I mean, it wouldn't be a, a good uh, answer if somebody said, uh, is there going to be a recession? Do you think there'll be a recession next year? It wouldn't be a good answer. Just, well, say, how can you talk about a recession? We haven't even established that the external world exists. That right. wouldn't be mm. a very good way of proceeding. So I think Mises is interested in philosophy the extent he wants to show that the way he's doing things can be defended against various attacks, but he's not a philosopher in the sense he's trying to solve philosophical problems, although he has various things to say about problems in passing that I think are quite a philosophical interest. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's, to understand historically, or to understand some of his discussion, it helps to know the historical backdrop. So, for example, it was a standard ploy by the Marxists to say, oh, well, there's different types of logic, and so if you have bourgeois logic, you just can't get it, and, you know, so... You know, that, that's partly why Mises had to go through and say, well, no, let's look at the doctrine of polylogism and see what the problems are here and that sort of thing. Oh, oh yeah, yes, that's very basic to Mises' thought that uh, we all use the same logic. He wanted to know if there are different logics, what are they? Now, some people said, oh, but aren't there various in formal logic? Aren't there various systems you could use? In fact, there are different logics, but that wasn't what Mises was talking about. He had just in mind a common sense reasoning, and he he was saying, it isn't say that you'll find people, some people uh, think that contradictions show that if you have a contradiction, there's something wrong with it, but other people accept contradictions, have different logic. He says, this isn't right, we all use the same logic. And he thought that people who make reference, say, to bourgeois thought, they're just saying that because they want to avoid the conclusions of economics, that there are strict economic laws that limit what the state can do. Or say, if somebody says, well, we'd like to have a system where, a socialist system where Everything is centrally run. We don't have to worry about the uh, greedy uh, businessmen who are trying to make a profit. So Mises says, well, look, I've got an argument that shows you can't have a centralized socialist system. It wouldn't be able to calculate. So one response to that that Mises thinks that the people were inclined to give is to say, oh, well, when you talk about economic laws, there really aren't economic laws. It just reflects a particular style of thinking, reflects your class interest. And there are people still still say that today. They'll say, oh, uh, they'll say about uh, Mises and Hayek, they were just apologists for the capitalists. They, uh, they were just uh, not, if we're, say, members of the proletariat, or we don't have to worry about their logic. And there's also there's a similar pattern in among the Nazis. Of course, they would say, we don't have to. Certain kinds of economics are Jewish, so mm-hmm. we don't have to worry about it. There's a special Jewish way 
of thinking. So the Aryan Aryan thought is different. <clears throat> you know, they they would have things like Aryan physics, but for me, this is what the primarily want to talk about polylogism amounted to was an effort to eliminate economics because it led to conclusions that the people with certain ideologies wouldn't like. Yeah, it's, um, and I remember there's a great passage and I think it's in human action where Mises is taking this stuff out and he says something like, you know, even on their own terms, the Marxists who try to use this, this tactic by just dismissing objections as saying, oh, that's just because it's, you have a different, you know, bourgeois logic. He said, still, they should say, okay, here's like the doctrine, the, the theorem of comparative advantage. And according to bourgeois logic, it's a valid proof. But then because we have this different framework with different axioms or whatever rules of inference, look at step five in the, in the theorem. It doesn't work under, you know, <laughs> under proletariat yeah, yeah, logic. I mean, and he's saying they, they never bother to do that. They just, they just dismiss wrong it. With it. Yeah. <laughs> because obviously if they try, <laughs> if they got too specific, it would be clear that, well, no, they were just, you know, denying something self-evident and calling that just an offshoot of uh, you know, bourgeois logic when clearly it was a standard demonstration. Um, maybe. So, can you speak a little bit to, because let me just give the backstory here, is when I was younger, I I agreed with that sort of uh, impatience and said, oh, I, I love this, you know, Mises business cycle theory, I love the capital theory stuff, but, eh, you know, this all this praxeology and operary stuff, I could take it or leave it. But now as I am older, I I think I, I really appreciate why he's doing that. And just a, a quick story is, I was teaching an undergrad standard micro intro micro class at Hillsdale years ago in the, the first chapter of the textbook, it was teaching the students how to think like an economist. And so it had a bunch of principles like incentives matter and every choice has an opportunity cost and people make decisions on the margin, things like that. Um, and then the last one though, David, it said, um, for economics to be scientific, its propositions need to be falsifiable or something like that. You know, maybe it was less formal language, but that's what it was saying. Oh, oh yeah. And so just for the benefit of the students, I kind of went off on a little tangent to explain why you know, actually, you know, I don't think I agree with this and you know, that kind of stuff. And a student raised his hand and he was a brilliant insight. And he said, also notice that every of the other principles that this book listed is how to think like an economist. Those aren't testable propositions you know like to oh, say oh, yes. incentives matter that's not testable yes, yes I, I mean how would you show that something doesn't have an opportunity cost right and so that yeah so it, it just flows so that's the way now i try to explain to people as i say something like mm -hmm. you know if i throw a ball up in the air and it has a certain trajectory no physicist would explain those observations by saying oh the ball originally wanted to go up but then got scared and changed its mind it's not just that that's wrong but you would say that's not even science talk that's not how empirical science operates but if you see a bus that's going one way and then turns around as social scientists we can quite plausibly say oh the driver forgot his wallet and that's why he changed it. you know what i mean and so saying that the decision to explain phenomena or observations by reference to a thinking being that has goals or motivations i mean that once you make that choice there's a lot of stuff that automatically comes with it and and that's what I thought, you know, Mises is trying to do with, uh, you know, with praxeology. Once you decide that you're going to go down this path of saying humans act, 
then you can actually deduce a lot of stuff that we, that oh, we oh, might yes, not I call think, the, the framework of economics. That's exactly right. Yes, I mean, it's not that uh, I think when people say falsifiable, it's a bit ambiguous because falsifiable would mean something like uh, when they talk about this is uh, in when empiricists talk about this, they mean something like there's a possible situation where what you're suggesting is false. So that's kind of ruling out from the start uh, propositions that are necessarily true that must be the case. It's saying if something it, it, it makes uh, something counts as a proposition of science, there it can't be something that holds necessarily. We must be able to. There must be some possibility that it's false. But Mises points out. I mean, he was well aware of this criticism. He says, "Well, you know, that's just why should we characterize science in that way? Why shouldn't we say if you're if you really want to know what the science is, we should look at all the sciences, one of which is economics. So you shouldn't make your criterion of scientifically acceptable statements something that doesn't take economics into account. This was a point he made against uh, Karl Popper. Mm -hmm. He has this in Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science. He says, look, Popper says this is cri criterion for scientific statement is that it's falsifiable. But, and so Mises says, well, look, you're not being true to the facts of what science is. You should look at what the actual sciences are. And what's interesting, too, is, um, you, you know, earlier you mentioned Milton Friedman. I had a debate at Porkfest one year with David Friedman on methodology, you know, like well, what method should we use in economics? And I was making these types of points, too, and saying, you know, it's not like physics and you know, and I was for the crowd. I was trying to use some simplistic example, like saying, "Hey, if you believe in free trade, it's not because you read a bunch of regressions. It's because mm -hmm. you read Bastiat or you know Henry Hazlitt, and it was a simple thought experiment, or maybe like a little model of a, of a two good, you know, two countries, two goods sweater and sweaters and wine or something. And you saw, you know, it just you saw it, you saw the logic, and then boom, now you now you understand the case for free trade. It, it's not the way that physicists could convince you." of something in, you know, in quantum behavior, which is counterintuitive. And what was funny is um, when I was contrasting it with like the positivist approach, uh, David Friedman was, you know, he was denying, he's like, no, nobody does that. And I was like, well, maybe they don't do it. So maybe in practice, mainstream economists are praxeologists. I wouldn't deny that. But in terms of when they go to write it up and I was like, you know, of course, refer I felt funny. I was referring to his father's famous essay about, you know, the, the, po the positivist approach. So it was kind of funny that I think probably it's true that in practice, like, so again, like a Chicago school economist, they run a regression and it looks like rent control has no impact. I think they're probably just going to say that must be wrong. Re you know, run it again. Walter Block's famous, you know, thing about. Oh yeah. Yes. I was just thinking of Walter's story with Gary Becker, where he, I think he came up, Walter came up with the regression that, didn't show an effect for rent control. So Gary Becker says, oh, well, you've got to do this again. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, in any event, like that, that's just a good example, I think, where it's, um, 
you know, the Austrians are being castigated as these, you know, medieval anti-empirical people when I think in practice, most economists, certainly those in the free market camp, you know, the, the principles they believe in and it's, it wasn't after, it wasn't, they were agnostic in the beginning and then looked at a bunch of experiments. That's not, so, you know, maybe Paul Krugman, if you heard this conversation, says, aha, see, they're admitting they're dogmatists. They don't care about evidence, but um, you know, I, I think it's just being honest about that's, that's how you, you frame it. Yes. Yes. Well, that's your favorite economist, Paul Krugman. Favorite living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so partly why I wanted to get you on here, David, as you know, is you recently had a, an exchange with Michael Anton where uh, he read something you wrote and he wrote a piece entitled Libertarianism, colon, a feel-good suicide pact. So can you explain for the listeners what the heck did oh. you do to provoke this guy to say that about libertarianism? Oh, well, what had happened was uh, Anton... Michael Anton, I should say, he's a he's a speak. He was had been in the Trump administration. I think he was in some, had some to do with national security, and he'd been a speechwriter for President Trump. He'd also he also earlier been a speechwriter for Rudy Giuliani, and he wrote an article in the Claremont Review of Books. Jeff Geis asked me to write on, and what he said there was. He was talking about uh, mainstream conservatism, and he said, "Well, mainstream conservatism makes uh, is talking about the free market and need for tax tax reform, balancing the budget." And he said, "This doesn't appeal to the younger generation anymore. We need to if uh, the, what the younger generation are interested in is uh, something." something else and he, he mentioned a book that had come out by this uh rather odd character you don't know who who his real name hasn't been revealed but he wrote under the pseudonym bronze age pervert and uh he had a book uh, a book called bronze age uh mindset so anton thought this was give us some indication of what the youth are thinking about and Anton himself had written a, a short book. It actually started off as an essay called The Flight 93 Election. So remember, in Flight 93 on September 11, 2001, it had been on the way, apparently, to uh, run, in, run into the Capitol building. To, it had been taken over by the hijackers. And people on the plane got control of the plane and got it, it crashed with uh, everybody dying. So uh, what Anton was suggesting was he thought the 2016 election was something like a Flight 93 election, which is something like our last chance to save the country from the left-wing Democrats and mm -hmm. he thought he's particularly concerned with Muslim immigration and he thought that if we don't support Trump, this may be our last chance to save the country. So what I did in my uh, I just did a brief review of, of, of 
maybe I shouldn't have attempted so much in just one article. I commented on his article and then his the Flight 93 election essay, which he expanded into a book, and also on this uh, uh, Bronze Age mindset. So what I said was, I didn't think he had, Anton had any real principles. He had very points he disliked about various policies, but even he didn't explain why, how he, what the basis for his views were. For example, he's willing to support a lot of government intervention in the economy himself. And he's, I should also say, he's a follower in uh, political philosophy of this uh, writer, Harry Jaffa, who taught at Claremont for many years. And Jaffa is the one who has a, sees American history kind of centered around Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was the great figure who who understood the real meaning of the Declaration of Independence, and he he developed a new a way of thinking where the uh, American system is based on certain principles. Of, some of them sound all right, but they're based on individual rights, but they, they allow, it allows a great deal of government intervention. And then this was carried for, uh, in 20th century. Winston Churchill's the great hero. And as it happens, uh, Jaff is one of my big uh, enemies in the sense mm-hmm. I've written a lot attacking Jeff. So I wrote a, a short essay saying I didn't think Anton's views were very good. And he said in the suicide essay, he thought what I'm doing, libertarians are doing, is we're insisting on certain principles. You must, the government can't, we shouldn't have a government, or we have only a minimal government. And we're not facing the dangers uh, that uh, America confronts today. We're just insisting on certain principles, like, say, the, something like the enemies at the gates, but all you can talk about is how we should never violate uh, property rights. So he was saying libertarianism is an unrealistic idea. It's kind of a stupid idea. He thinks he thought I'm stupid. I don't. And he, he's, he was very, I'm, you might say I'm one to talk, but he had, he had what I considered a unusual rhetorical style is he would say something like this, oh, you're terrible because you called me this, you said I, you said I'm a skilled textual analyst, so you're obviously making fun of me because that's not what you really think. Look how you smeared me. And he'd made the whole thing up. I meant what I said, but he, he was saying, look what it, how terrible you are because you're saying all these bad things about me. And the bad mm-hmm. things were ones that he had come up with. So after he wrote this, and one of the things he said, I had completely misunderstood Jaffa. And uh, he said, you know, I, I was saying something like Jaffa favors his real messages that philosophers like him should be guiding the state. So he says, oh, oh no, this is all nonsense. I can't ever have read Jaffa. 
And I'd written a very long essay uh, in 1992 arguing for my view of Jaffa. So then he had it, I pointed this out, and he had a further essay saying, well, I'd done quite a bit of work on that, but I hadn't understood Jaffa correctly. And he was going on about how uh, how bad uh, what he thought Jaffa really meant. He, uh, But again, I, I felt he didn't, really he doesn't really come up with he i think he he knows quite a bit about jaffa but he doesn't really come up with good arguments for his view of rights he just repeats what jaffa says where uh there are mistakes in jaffa's arguments that i tried to point out but i don't think he's really interested in that sort of philosophy just wants to have a certain political message that he's trying to push. Now, one thing I should say is a bit odd is that Jaffa, he, he Anton likes this book called uh, the um, the one on the, uh, by the Bronze Age pervert, B-A-P, Bronze Age mindset. And that book is kind of a racialist book saying we should uh, really admire the ancient Greeks, kind of the, the Greeks of the Homeric period, they had kind of an ideal we could all, white people could aspire to. They were kind of warriors. And it's a very anti feminist book. Women are evil and no good unless they know their place, which is hard to figure out. I mean, I think he would probably think a woman's place is in the stove or something. Mm-hmm like that, but uh, the thing that was odd that Anton is saying, what an insightful book this is, although he doesn't agree with it, is it's completely at odds with Jaffa, who was teaching equality. Jaffa is one who says, well, we have to be committed to certain propositions, America, as long as you accept the principles of the Declaration of Independence, you count as an American. uh, But seem to go against this Bronze Age pervert stuff. So I think Anton is really in two minds, none of which, neither of which impresses me very much. So just in case the listeners are getting a little confused, is the following correct that, so there's this guy who calls himself Bronze Age pervert and he had a a, a booklet or a book talking about modern society and how America's going wrong and then was looking back. So sort of like a in-your-face, tongue-in-cheek almost, um, very politically incorrect, like, you know, push all the buttons of the of those leftists and ha-ha, they're for, yeah. they're for equality or whatever. No, back when men were men and, you know, they weren't afraid to eat yeah. red meat and da-da-da. And this guy, Michael Anton, was saying that type of thing is going to capture the youth more than these idiot libertarians who are worried about you know, the non-aggression principle? Yes, 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 he's saying this appeals to youth and what the BAP was talking about, I mean, he has a whole, he knows a great deal about the ancient Greeks and he has various theories about them that he gives to sometimes quite eloquent. He's been influenced by Nietzsche a lot and he has kind of Nietzschean thoughts. And The book's certainly worth reading, but as I say, it's not, the kind of philosophy I like, but it is, I said, what struck me as odd about it is, 
Anton prays that it, it isn't, it would definitely not be a Jaffa sort of book mm. either. Jaffa would have, I think, dismissed this. So I'd want to know, is does Anton still consider himself a follower of Jaffa? Is he giving the message that this is really the way to go? Now, there one view is that Anton himself is the BAP, but this seems implausible. He's had the one who the BAP has commented on Anton's review of his book on this uh, site called The American Mind, which is published by the Claremont Institute in California. So it's unusual because they, they start out there. Uh, uh, followers of Jaffa, but they publish a lot of stuff by the, the uh, people who are considered what they call it alt-right, like mm. Mencius Moldbug is one of their writers and BAP. So uh, I don't find that stuff particularly appealing. I mean, I suppose there are a segment of younger people who like it, but uh, I'm I'm not young and I don't like it. <laughs> um, maybe this is a good time. Can you briefly explain? So, I mean, just for me being around and hearing these discussions, or I know that like the Claremont Institute and, and Jaffa and people in that tradition, they tend to like statesmen. They, they like Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill and they're, you know, the real bold state. And they're very exasperated with you libertarians and your little whining about you know, oh my gosh, do I have to pay sales tax when meanwhile, you know, Hitler's armies are massing at the border and civilization is at stake and you're worried about, um, you know, can shop owners re refuse service to anybody they like? And that's the kind of thing you idiot libertarians are focused on. So I know there's that, but there's also like the neoconservatives. Are those totally distinct things or, or does neoconservatism overlap with like the Claremont Institute and, and the School of Thought of Jaffa and so forth? Oh, well, I th think more of the latter. There's, there's quite a bit of overlapping. The, the neoconservatives uh, aren't tied to a particular philosophical school, but there are some neoconservatives who, see, uh, the Jaffa, Jaffa was a student of Leo Strauss, who was a great uh, uh, political philosopher and historian of political thought who was a uh, German and then he came to the U.S. and taught at University of Chicago and he, he I think he was a visiting professor a while at Claremont and Jaffa was one of his students when he'd been at the New School for Social Research in New York. Jaffa, Jaffa had been one of his first American students. So they, the Straussian group, there are various sorts of Straussian, they tend to think as you suggest in your remarks, politics is concerned with certain major issues that are of uh, world historical significance, uh, in that the economic sphere is has to be strictly subordinate to the truth of politics. That really, that the great political philosophers are really had profound things to say about the nature of human beings that that they feel they can interpret uh, better than uh, 
other people, the Straussians feel they can interpret better than other people. So some of the neoconservatives, such as William Kristol, who is one is what are also Straussians, but the the uh, Claremont group tends to be more they in foreign policy. They don't always agree. The neocons tend to be something saying something like we should spread human rights all over the world. Let's like, say we need to intervene in Iraq. One of the reasons is or in uh, Afghanistan, look how horribly the women are treated in Afghanistan. We need to put in democracy in Iraq and Afghanistan elsewhere. The Claremont group doesn't take that view uh, to any great extent. It's more an assertion, sort of an assertion of American nationalism is founded on certain principles, but it's not, uh, it doesn't have the view we want to spread democracy. One way of looking at that is that the neocons, you could associate something like neo-Wilsonianism, like remember Woodrow Wilson, make the world safe for democracy. But the Claremont group is more in tradition of uh, Henry Cabot Cabot Lodge, more Theodore Roosevelt, more an American national interest but it's based on certain principles. So it's, and for them, the, um, this, I think they're right. The Claremont, Woodrow Wilson is one of the great villains. Sort of he introduced a, a new, he went against the constitution and he thought the constitution was outdated. He was what they call a historicist, someone who believed in, truth is relative to historical period instead of believing in universal principles as found in Lincoln and found in the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution is expounded by Lincoln. So it's a there's some overlapping, but it's a different, generally a different sort of of uh, beliefs. And as I say, for this Claremont group, Harry Jaffa is the supreme thinker. Okay, so are they, but would they all be considered Straussian? Because that's another term you hear thrown around a lot. Uh, yeah, yes. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're just, uh, they're split. Because Strauss among the taught Strauss- Jaffa and then Jaffa. Yes, yes. I mean, they're splits among the Straussians. So they're what they call West Coast Straussians, who try to say that the, uh, what, what the, the ancients were really teaching was that the, they supported something like a uh, democracy understood in a constitutional way. Sort of in the Jaffa view, there isn't a contrast so much as many Straussians take it between ancient philosophy, which stresses the virtues, what human beings can be, and modern philosophy, which is we can't achieve a virtuous life in politics, so we have to be satisfied with a fairly good regime that's what they call low but solid based on self-interest. So that's what's called an East Coast Straussian view that seems to be more in accord with Strauss's own views. But Jaffa said, no, really, Locke should be taken, should be taken as quite Aristotelian and they were all 
teaching that the virtue can be achieved in the actual world if you follow these right principles as they expound them. And I'm guessing that the West Coast and East Coast philosophers, they, they listen to the rap music accordingly, too, because there's also that East-West Coast schism in rap. Oh, oh I, I didn't know that. I, I guess I wasn't hip-hopping <laughs> fast enough to be aware of such things. Um, Sounds like a bum rap to me. (laughs) Um, If you have time just for one more question here, David, how do you respond to, I mean, because it's kind of interesting that the claim from, and and, because I remember this too, when I taught at Hillsdale College, that was something that one of the history professors said to me when I, you know, after, you know, just in private discussions, we were going over some of this. It might've been, in reference to Tom's DiLorenzo's book about, on Lincoln or whatever, but the guy said something to me along the lines of just like you, you said, it reminded me of, oh, well, politics trumps economics. And, and, and this was years ago, so he wasn't making a reference to Donald Trump. He just meant, you know, politics is more, yeah. you know, more important or, or there's a primacy there. So just if, if that's what someone's trying to do to sort of invalidate libertarianism or the results of Austrian, oh, no, no, politics trumps economics. Like what, what's your response to a claim like that? Oh, well, I think there we'd have to get back to uh, using Mises and Rothbard as economics as teaching universal truths about human action. So it is the case that if we have these universal truths, we can set them aside. We can and say they, uh, we might think that they would show that certain kinds of uh, economic intervention won't work. So we can say if we want, well, even if the economic measures won't work, we think there are certain higher values that justify setting, going seemingly against the truth. For example, suppose we say, well, free trade will result in all the parties to the trade uh, benefiting because you wouldn't trade with somebody unless you each party thought it was to his or her advantage. So somebody could say, well, even that's right. I think it's more important to have our nation produce certain goods, even if there's an economic cost to it. So somebody could say that, but as Mises pointed out, you should be aware of the cost you're paying. So I would say, somebody says politics trumps economics. I could say, would say, well, you can say that, but you should be aware of what what it is you're giving up. Yeah, and I know that's kind of my reaction too, that it's certainly not, I mean, if it merely means, oh, just because economics, you know, laissez-faire economics prescribes, you know, a pure market economy, but the political system, we're not going to do that and we win because the public mm-hmm. wants it and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt mm-hmm. breaks up the trust or whatever, ha-ha, we win. I mean, Partly the reason Mises and Rothbard spent so much time educating the public is because they knew we didn't have a pure market economy. So certainly it's not like any Austrian economist is going to slap his head and be like, do you mean, depending on the election, that uh, you know somebody like FDR didn't implement laissez-faire? Jeez, thanks for letting me. So that clearly can't be what it means. But as you say, David, it also, you know, as the economist, you'd say, okay, you're certainly, you know, quote, allowed to, or you can get away with violating 
you know, the laissez-faire prescription, if you will, but your economic law is still lost. So you're still going to suffer the consequences. I mean, it's, so it's, it's just, I don't know. It, it seemed like a, like, I think if you push the person to say, what do you mean by that? When you say politics trumps economics, it's, it's sort of a, a, a vapid slogan that of course, a free market economists know we don't live under laissez-faire and that's the whole point of trying to educate people. Oh, oh yes, yes, I think that's right. That's one thing that I mean, Anton says in this uh, like 93 election, as he says, well, you know, the Trump people want tariffs, but he doesn't tell us, well, what is supposed to be so good about tariffs? It's just, well, he just says this is what people want, but what, what are they going to get out of it that he doesn't tell us? Yeah, I had an earlier episode here, David, and folks out. So again, folks, this is BobMurphyShow.com slash 89. Um, but yeah, I had an episode on nationalism like with Tucker Carlson. And it was, I was making the point that if you want to be an economic nationalist, fine, but get your economics right. You know, it's not enough to say, oh, oh right. if, if what you're doing is going to make your nation poorer, then that's the opposite of economic nationalism. Right, right. I mean, uh you're not going to be getting anywhere. You won't be achieving the ends you say you want. That was a way Mises liked to argue. He said, well, instead of saying, here are my values and I'm putting against yours, he wants to say, look, well, this is what you say you want. Will the means you propose get you to what you want? Yeah, and also, too, like in terms of the the goal, like Mises would always say that, you know, the the masses when they're promised socialism or, you know, when, when they're being sold socialism, the theorists would always promise them more material goods. So if oh, you oh, want yeah. to say as, yeah, as a socialist theorist that, oh, that's crass and, you know, hedonistic or whatever, okay, fine. But in practice, that's what the parties are promising. So certainly as an economist, I can point out, no, that's wrong. You're not going to get a higher standard of living. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. I mean, he says something like, well, some people say, uh, look, you're talking about these, materialistic things. What about people really want to sacrifice for the state? What about the benefits of giving your life for your country? And he says, this isn't the way the uh, supporters of those regimes really uh, argue when they're talking to the people. They say, no, this will bring you, our policies will bring you peace and prosperity. They don't say, look, these policies will make us all poor, but at least you'll have the benefit that you know, you know you're sacrificing for the community. That isn't the way they present themselves. No, not at all. Well, that's probably a good spot for us to wrap up. So thank you, uh, David, for your time on this interview and also for your uh, tireless contributions to advancing libertarianism and the knowledge of Austrian economics and pointing out all the mistakes that every other author has ever written. Oh, thanks, Bob. It was great being on your show. Thanks. All right, thanks. And folks, we will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.